during the Great Depression. He got out on his own, and he was a very industrious man. He was in the United States Navy in World War II, where he learned to be a barber. He got out of the Navy, had his own barber shop there in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I don't think the, uh, there's a, uh, I don't know, I can't, I don't want to speculate that. But anyway, the, his place burned down. <laughs> uh, and um, so uh, he took the money from that and then ended up, as, as for the most of the years that I I don't want to try to force feed you just tonight. And uh, sometimes, sometimes I think it's better as God's people to slow down a little bit and uh, chew on our food <laughs> and, uh, and think about what God is, is uh, revealing to us through his word. And so I think this is one of those cases. I, I mentioned Wednesday night that I'd be bringing this message on Sunday night, uh, but the more that I studied it out, the more I realized uh, let's let's have a course this morning and then uh, chew on it and let it settle and then come back this evening and and, and uh, we'll serve the rest of it, okay? So we've been doing a study on the book of Ezra on our Sunday nights for uh, quite some time now. And uh, it, this, this will be a, a bit of review for some of you, but the book of Ezra was written uh, to restore faith in God's people. And um, we're not going to be able to go back and rehearse everything that took place, but uh, just uh, know that as we talk about this, this is God dealing with his people, the Jews, uh, and, and uh, in a time when they were coming out of Babylonian captivity. And we'll cover some of this as we go through the message this morning. You do not want to miss tonight's message because after we uh, serve up tonight's message, we're going to give some practical things of, well, what are we to do? What are we to do? And I think one of the reasons why I had such a difficult time, and it was, it was outside influences and, uh, that, that were affecting me being able to get uh, finished with this in time for this morning, I really believe it was the adversary. I don't like saying his name because I think he likes it when I say his name from the pulpit, so I just call him the adversary. I don't even capitalize his name when I write notes and stuff like that, I just stick it to him, you know. Uh, you don't give him a capital D on his name or, or L or S or whatever you want to call the adversary. Uh, don't like mentioning his name. But I think I really had some adversarial uh, kind of inter interventions here, interactions. My computer died. Stuff that it was supposed to save didn't save. Uh, notes that I had, uh, you know, just it was just amazing how difficult it was to get to this point this morning. And I thank the Lord uh, that, that it's here, and I'm here, and I'm healthy, and you're healthy, and you're here. And we're going we're gonna to talk about this morning the adversary. And uh, we're going to talk about the tactics of the adversary 
On Wednesday night, we're looking at the age of the Antichrist, uh, the fact that there are many Antichrists in the world. The person of the Antichrist has not yet come, but the spirit of Antichrist is here. And we've been revealing some of that on Wednesday nights. What does that look like? And then uh, today uh, and, and, and tonight, we'll be looking at the tactics of the adversary. This is almost a follow-up. Well, it is a follow-up to last Sunday night's message. And just revealing the tactics of the adversary. You know what I find to be interesting? The same things that the adversary used even way back in the Garden of Eden are the same tactics that are being used today. He doesn't get any new tactics. Why would you if they work, right? Why reinvent the wheel? So he just keeps repackaging his tactics in different ways and over and over again. And I think if we're going to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints as we've been instructed to do in this day and age, then it helps us to know the tactic of the adversary so that we can recognize it, so that we can guard against it, so that we can, uh, we can battle uh, through it. And, of course, what we will see today what it is that we use to battle the tactics of the adversary. It's not our flesh and blood. Uh, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Ezra chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity... If you're looking for Ezra... It's one of those books that's hard to find. So you go to, it's before Psalms and Proverbs, if that helps you. So you go to Psalms and go back to your left about an eighth of an inch. Get about an eighth of an inch of paper, and uh, it'll be somewhere around there. It's, before, it's right before Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, okay? Ezra chapter 4, verse number 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel. That's a person and to the chief of the fathers, and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of that guy, king of Acer, uh, which brought us up hither. I'm not even going to attempt it because I don't want you to make fun of me uh, after I try to attempt that guy's name. So if you know what it is, you can come to me afterwards and tell me what it is. But in the meantime, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to identify, as we earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints, that you'd help us to identify the adversary, his tactics, so that we will not be thwarted by his attempts to confuse and distract us from what you want us to do. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as long as we are in this world, we are at war. And I'm not talking about a physical war. I'm talking about a spiritual war. It's a war that goes on whether we're aware of it or not. It almost sounds fantastic, and I use that, that word fantastic, I think in the purest sense of the word, it sounds like a fantasy, but it's real. And it sounds like a fantasy to us because we can't see it. It's a spiritual warfare that goes on around us. Paul talked about it in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12 when he said, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we find that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth that, that although we, uh, we're in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. Then he goes on to say the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That word carnal comes from the Greek word carne. If you know what carne asada is, it's meat, right? If you're at a carne, I'm making myself hungry now talking about that. I love tacos. And uh, so carne, it's, it's the flesh, right? Uh, so the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not, they're not flesh and blood, they're, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They're, they're spiritual weapons. 
And uh, uh, Ephesians 6 talks about that, uh, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, you know all that stuff. And it's not physical things, not fleshly things. They are spiritual things that we fight a spiritual warfare with. Now, while I'm here, let me just stop and, and, and remind you that our enemy is not that flesh and blood person that sits across the political aisle from us, that believes differently than we do, that, uh, that may have different opinions about different things than we do. That's not the enemy. That's not the enemy. The enemy is not flesh and blood, but the enemy is that spiritual realm. And that through that, he's got his kingdom, and he works through uh, people just like God works through his people. And so uh, these are principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in this world. And, and as long as we are in this world, we are at war, and it's a spiritual warfare. And the adversary will do anything that he can, use anything at his disposal to distract and discourage us from setting forward as the people of God did here in the book of Ezra and doing the work that God has called us to do. Now, God was calling them to go back to uh, set up the altar and rebuild the temple. That uh, was uh, the man Zerubbabel. That was, God, that was God's man that was chosen to lead uh, the uh, people out of captivity, that remnant, that group of people. By the way, the remnant is not who is left over. The remnant is made up of those who are left over. And uh, God, uh, it was called, they call it the return. One of the returns, there's three returns. And so they, uh, God had given them that work to do. And uh, uh, they uh, had uh, set up the altar. Uh, they had already done that. They'd made sacrifices and they began to restore uh, the worship uh, as it was written in the in the Word of God that they had at that time. And um, then they laid the foundations of the temple. And then this is uh, what took place, we find, in uh, chapter number 4. And uh, they were distracted from doing what God called them to do. Now, um, I want you to notice with me, uh, well, throughout the day, and there's no reason there's seven of them. I'm not, this isn't some kind of spooky numerology thing. Um, that's just how many I came up with. <laughs> so that's really spiritual, isn't it? Um, but it's nothing more than that, that there just ended up being seven. We'll, do, we'll cover four this morning and three this evening and then give you some, what are we to do as God's people tonight? You don't want to miss tonight. If you do, you're going to miss out on, on the, the, I think, the best part of the message. So notice with me uh, seven tactics of the adversary which can be observed. Now, before we start with the first one, I want to remind you, that um, what ended up happening is the work ceased. We covered that last Sunday night. The adversary was successful in getting God's people to stop working. And we said this last Sunday night, and I wanted to repeat it again this morning because you're going to hear it a little bit later. God was not stopped. The people were stopped. There's a big difference there. I think it's important as we consider these things uh, today uh, throughout the day. Number one, number one tactic, not necessarily in any order, just because of how they, uh, I find them in Scripture. Number one, the adversary targets leadership. The adversary targets leadership. Now, you might right away uh, have a preconceived idea about what I'm talking about, um, but, but I, I think it's, it's bigger than what you might think. In verses 1 and 2, the Word of God says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, 
Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers. And I want you to note there that the adversaries did not just come after the governor, Zerubbabel. Uh, the adversary came after the chief of the fathers as well. He didn't just come after one. He was targeting leadership. Now, I don't think there's any doubt when we think about the, the, this, the realm of the church and how this applies to us spiritually. The adversary most definitely is going to target the pastor and his family. I think that's, it's just part of what it is. Um, I had an interesting conversation with, uh, with Allison. She's in here this morning. She uh, teaches our child, one of our children's Sunday school classes. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think it's obvious to uh, people around us that, that our kids have been a, a focus of, uh, of targeting, um, you know, throughout the ministry. Now, I like Allison's take on it. There's also a tremendous amount of privilege of being a pastor's kid. And I don't think you should feel sorry for them. Uh, I think you should pray for them uh, because uh, th there is, there is a, a bit of targeting that the adversary places on the pastor and his family. But you know what the truth is? He also targets the deacons and their families. Um, it, really, anyone who takes the, on the responsibility of leadership in the church in any form is subject to targeting. Why is that? Because the adversary does not want you to succeed. And he's trying to distract you and trying to stop you from doing what it is that God wants you to do. Any person, man, woman, boy, or girl, who sets forward like they did, like these people did, by faith becomes a target. For example, when a husband and wife determine that they're going to have a Christian home, they become a target. I mean, think about it, right? You ever had that, those situations where you've gone to church and you've heard some message that stirred your heart up for the things of God and you made some commitment to God? And then all of a sudden, from out of the blue, you know, you thought everything was going to be rainbows and unicorns. And, and uh, you, you know, maybe you were led to believe that if you'll just give your life to Christ, everything's going to be perfect. And you find out very quickly that's not the case, right? Anytime that anybody determines to, uh, to do something for God, to step out by faith, to step forward by faith, they become a target. It's true of a husband and wife that uh, step out to have a Christian home. They become a target. When a young person makes a commitment, steps out by faith for the Lord, they become a target. When any believer sets forward God and the work of God as a priority of their life, they become a target. Now, you might say, well, why in the world are you telling us this? Because I, you're not going to get any more volunteers in church if you start talking like that, right? Why would I volunteer to step out and do anything for the Lord, Pastor, if you're sitting here and telling me that the minute that I decide to set forward my faith, that I'm going to become a target? Well, you can look at it that way. Uh, you can fear becoming a target. Um, you, you can. I, I, I think I've mentioned this before. If you never want to be criticized for anything, uh, then uh, don't ever say anything, don't ever do anything. Uh, and, and you can live a, a completely uh, criticism-free life. Uh, but that's just not, not very plausible, is it? So I, I would say this uh, to the person who might be thinking, well, I, I just won't st set forward for the Lord and I won't do anything because I'm afraid of becoming a target. Here's what I would say to that. Don't fear becoming a target. Fear being idle. Because the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14, or I'm sorry, sorry, Proverbs chapter 19, the idle soul is the soul that suffers hunger. Um, idleness, think about it. Idleness is the idolatry of self. If I'm, if I'm not getting involved uh, 
because of fear of becoming a target, that's a very self-preserving position to take, is it not? And so it becomes an idolatry of self. We learned in Sunday school, uh, in my, my class anyway, that the heart is never neutral. And it's always got an orientation toward self or it's got an orientation toward God, right? It's one or the other. It's, it's never neutral. And when it comes to idleness, it's really an orientation toward self. Idleness is not necessarily unrighteous living. Th- think about this. Being idle is not necessarily unrighteous living, but on the other hand, it's not necessarily righteous living. What it really is is self-righteous living, and that's the worst kind of life of all, a self-righteous life. I think every one of us would agree with that. I find that to be true in the, what Jesus had to say to the church at Laodicea. Remember that in Revelation chapter 3 where he said, I would that thou wert hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. You know what Jesus was saying to that church at Laodicea? What uh, Jesus says to churches with that Laodicean spirit and, and uh, the age of the Laodicean churches, what Christ is saying is, is, is this, that, that it's, it's, it's not that you're unrighteous, and it's not that you're righteous, you're self-righteous, and that makes me sick, so I spew you out of my mouth. It's the same thing here. Don't fear being a target. Fear being spewed out because you're unusable. By the Lord. And by the way, you've heard me say that before too. I, I think that's what that reference is talking about. I, I just can't wrap my head around this idea that God would rather have us be cold. I don't get that. I don't see that. But cold water is at least usable, isn't it? I mean, if you're out there and you're doing work outside, cold water is usable. It's beneficial, right? How about hot water? He said, I, I would thou were hot. Hot water is good. Put hot water through some coffee beans, it makes coffee. I like coffee. That's good. Tea, whatever you want to say. You're cold, working outside in the cold, come inside, drink something warm, right? It, it's usable. But when Jesus talks about that lukewarm, lukewarm's about usable for nothing. I mean, you can, sure, it's usable. It's not totally unusable. You can use it for, um, if you, my wife will take a, a yeast when she's baking uh, and she'll, mix up that yeast and that lukewarm water to help it break down, right? But what's the point? The point is it's not as usable. It's not as beneficial as hot water and cold water. And so that's what I'm saying. Fear being idle. Fear being lukewarm. Don't fear being targeted and uh, don't fear being usable. Uh, Fear being unusable or not usable very much. And so we see that that Uh, adversary targets leadership. Number two, the adversary attempts to get God's people to find another way. Look at verse number two. It says, Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Hey, let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. Now, uh, this is not something that can be applied just to God's people. I, I think this is something that can be applied to people in general where the adversary is always coming along and he's always offering a different way. In this case, uh, he's coming to uh, the people of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, they're saying, hey, let us build with you. Now, we talked about that Sunday night. Really what they were saying is, hey, let us join you so we can control what you're doing and actually stop you from doing what it is that you're trying to do. And uh, that's often what that means. But the adversary is always coming along, and it's not just to God's people. It's 
really to all people in general. And he's always trying to get people to go another way, uh, attempting to get uh, people to, to get away from God's way, to find another way. I thought about what Paul said to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I thought about what Jesus said when he said, Enter ye uh, in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. I thought about what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Why did Jesus say that? Why did Jesus say he was the way, the truth, and the life? Well, he said he was the way because mankind is lost. That's a hard admission to make, isn't it? I understand that that's more, uh, more of a, a gender thing, isn't it? Fellas have a hard time stopping for directions. And I, I mentioned... In the past few weeks, I, over 30 years of marriage, I've learned one thing. My wife has taught me one thing. The sooner you stop and ask for directions, the quicker you can find your way, right? You don't have to wander around in your lost condition. And uh, that's why Jesus said, I am the way, uh, because there's lost people. He said, I came to seek and to save those that are lost. I guess if you're not lost, then Jesus didn't come to save you. I, I say that a bit uh, tongue-in-cheek and and encouragement to, real, to realize that we are all lost. We're born in a lost condition. We don't become sinners by sinning. Did you know that? We, we are born sinners. Yeah, that's a hard truth to swallow. We don't like that one, do we? The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse number 12 that, For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We have a, we've inherited a spiritual birth defect from our first parents, Adam and Eve. We're spiritually stillborn. That's why uh, God says in His Word in Ephesians chapter 2, You hath He quickened who are dead in your trespasses and sins. That thing that inside of you that allows you to walk with God and worship God needs to be made alive, and the only one that can do that is God. You ever hear of being born again? Jesus talked about it. It's biblical language. Nicodemus didn't understand it, so I don't feel so bad. I wouldn't feel so bad if I didn't understand it. But to be born again means that we're born again in the image that God had intended for man to be in the first place. When God created man, he formed him from the dust of the ground. He gave him a body, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's significant of that spirit, the thing which allows man to worship God and walk with God. And man became a living what? Soul. Our soul is our mind, our emotion, our will. It's what we think, it's what we want, it's what we feel. That spirit that God gave to mankind, that's what God thought, wanted, and felt. It's that thing that we fight over inside of us when we, it's, you know, sometimes illustrated with the angelic, you know, little being on one shoulder and the little devil on the other shoulder. Really, that's a, it's wrestling between uh, what we think, want, and feel and what God thinks, wants, and feels, right? God created man in his own image, did he not? He made a three-in-one man in his three-in-one image. But man spoiled that when he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. And, and man because of his sin, because of his rebellion toward God, uh, passed that spirit, his spirit died that day. God said, the day that you eat of the tree, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. Can you imagine, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Bend, Oregon. They had a Spanish translator there who was trying to translate me to the Spanish church that was going on at the same time. He came to me after the morning service and said, could you please slow down? <laughs> I said, I'll try. 
And uh, so I didn't. I didn't do a very good job. And he came to me afterwards. He said, that's okay, because the pastor of the church, he said, he's even worse than you are. <laughs> so anyway, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, God said, thou shalt surely die. Well, something died the day that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. It wasn't their body, because we have a record that they lived for a, a long time after that. Their soul didn't die. It's, what, it's, it's their essence. It's what they thought. It's what they wanted. It's what they felt. So, but something died that day because we know that God's not a liar, right? God, God follows through on his, his commitments. What died that day was man's spirit, that thing that allowed him to walk with God and to worship God. That's why when God came to the garden that, that evening, and, and, and uh, like he had normally done so many other times, that's why Adam and Eve hid. Because they had no, nothing in them that allowed them to walk and to worship God. And God had to make a provision for them and slay an innocent animal and shed that innocent animal's blood uh, to picture uh, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come and satisfy God's wrath by his own sacrifice, his shed blood, and uh, pictured that. And Adam and Eve looked forward to that, whereas we get to look back to that today. And... Um, and God did that so that he might maintain and keep a relationship with God. But in, in doing that, when, when man sinned, he had that spiritual birth defect. And everybody was born then at that point in Adam's image and in Adam's likeness. Not in the triune image of God, not a trichotomy, but a dichotomy. We had a body, a soul, and a dead spirit. A thing that wouldn't allow us to walk with God or worship God. So what, what, what did that necessitate? It necessitated the rebirth. You got to be born again. That's what that's all about. You were born in the image of man the first time, but then there comes a time in your life when you need to be reborn into, into the three-in-one image of God so that you can have that living spirit, so that you can walk with God, so that you can worship God. And the only way for that to happen is to follow the way that God gave us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. He said, I'm the truth, because every other way is false. I've had people say, you mean to tell me that you believe that only your way is the right way? I said, well, no, not my way, but God's way is the only way. I am, I am the way, I am the truth, because every other way is false. I am the life, uh, Jesus said, because every other way leads to death. Do you hear what I'm saying? It leads to destruction. There's no other way. That's why Jesus said what he said. But what does the adversary do? Try this way. Oh, that's, don't listen to what that uh, preacher says. Everybody's on the same road going to the same place. That's a lie. That's a lie of the adversary. Because the adversary is always working uh, to get people to go a different way. Try this way. That's what religion is all about. It's the birth of religion. It's man-made religion. And, and one person says do it this way. One person says do it that way. Well, you know, did you know, you might know this already, but there are over 4,400 belief systems in the world today. And every single one of them, and that's just the ones that can be counted, every single one of them contradict one another. Every one. None of them. There's not any of them that agree implicitly with one another. And so what does that tell you? Well, there's 4,399 ways that the adversary has promoted as being the way to God, and yet God says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. We're not all on different roads going to the same place. You're either on the road uh, to, uh, to eternity in the presence of God or you're on a road to eternal destruction. That's it. And that's not my message. That's the message of the Word of God. Amen? Okay, just checking.
how does this apply to God's people? Well, let me mention it like this. We might find another means by which to accomplish God's work. A means. But the message and the method will never change. But the adversary is always trying to change that. He's always trying to change the way to accomplish God's work. Let me see if I can build upon that for just a second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said, For Christ sent me to preach the gospel. That's the message. And the message doesn't change. The message is this. God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. And in that man's body, he lived a sinless life, went to the cross, shed his blood, died, was buried, rose again, and is ascended to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God where he intercedes for you and I right now this very moment. That's the message. That message was true 2,000 years ago. That message is true today, and 2,000 years from now, it'll still be true. That's the message we preach. The message never changes. Now, let me show you this. In verse number 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, I'm sorry, the chapter 1, we just read verse 17, for Christ sent me to preach the gospel. That's the message. Verse 21 says this, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's the method. The message is the gospel. The method is preaching. Do you know what preaching is? It's heralding the truth. Do you know that you're a preacher? If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be a preacher. That's what part of what the Great Commission is all about. Go ye therefore and, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. You're a, you're a heralder of the truth. That's what you're supposed to be as a believer. You're to herald the truth. Preaching is not isolated to what I do here behind the pulpit. And, you know, I heard some guy say about evangelists, I'm not, I do the work of an evangelist, but I'm a pastor. Um, he said that the evangelist blows in, blows up, blows and blows out of town, right? And uh, that's not preaching. Um, it, it's part of preaching. But you know, every time that you open up your mouth and herald the truth of God's word, you're being a preacher. Um, some, uh, we also know that, that uh, the part of that method includes teaching. Now, every, every pastor, according to the qualifications to be a pastor, is, ought to be apt to teach. So every pastor is a teacher, but every teacher is not a pastor, right? It's a different thing there, but, but what's the point here? The point here is that the, the method that God uses to get his message out is always preaching. That never changes. He said, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, that leads us back to what, where, I, where I started about our, the means of accomplishing God's work might change. So, that's okay. So we, if we don't change the message and we don't change the method, we're okay. But the means, the means can change, right? How'd you get to church this morning? Horse and buggy? No, you probably came in a, in a, in a motorized vehicle. Might have been internal combustion, might have been electric. I don't know. I don't even care. I'm just glad you're here. But the means... The means of how you got to church this morning has changed in the past hundred years, hasn't it? 
hundred years ago, they would have showed up in horses and buggies. The means has changed. Uh, Stacy's husband, uh, Pastor Cox, is in Cairo. You suppose they got in a ship three months ago and sailed over to Cairo? No. The means of getting the gospel to Cairo has changed. They got in an airplane, right? I'm guessing an airplane. They didn't walk. Right? You see what I'm saying? I, th- I, thank, the God, I thank God for, for uh, kind of how we were thrust into this whole thing two years ago when I remember one Sunday I showed up and we had uh, our Baptist Heritage Sunday. It was a great day. Had the uh, group from Crown College came and uh, did some special things, sang for us and good preaching. And, and it was March the 15th, and guess what happened the next day? It was March 15th, 2020. The next day, boom, everything was shut down. I'll never forget that day. The next Sunday I came to church. Guess who was at church? Me and Ryan DeKellis, because he had to set up the camera. But I'm so glad that we had that means of getting the gospel out, and we've just not stopped. I've had so many people say thank you for continuing to broadcast the services. There's people that listen on the telephone. Right now they're listening on the telephone. They're watching on the Internet. There's a means. We have a means that changes. It still accomplishes the work of God, and that changes. But the message doesn't change, and the method doesn't change. Just the means. But what does the adversary try to do? He tries to get God's people to find another way. I want to, I said the means doesn't change, but I want to say this because I think it's important. We should be cautious of those who want to change things up and turn truth into something more complicated. The Bible says, meddle not with them that are given to change. The Apostle Paul wrote to the young pastor Timothy, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went to Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. That's the words. This vain jangling desiring to be teachers of, of the law understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Be careful. Even if it's the means, be careful. Be cautious. That's all I'm saying. Be cautious. And the adversary, you never know. The adversary might be trying to introduce some new way, some new way. Change will wear you out. Do you know that? It will wear you out. Hey, you, you know that? Change, you ever change residence? That'll wear you out. I hate moving. A biblical illustration that can be seen in Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Write this scripture down. Go check it out later. When he spoke of the adversary who will rise to power, here's what it says. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. You see that? The adversary is working. And he's working to change the way. He's working to change the way. You've got to be careful of that. A moment ago we said that the message and method don't change, but the means may change. But be careful about the means too because the adversary often attempts to get God's people to find another way by disguising it in a new means, something which appears to be bigger, faster, better, shinier, more attractive. Just be careful. That's all I'm saying. What is the point? The point is the adversary attempts to get God's people to find another way. 
Number three, the adversary causes distraction. Look at verse number three in Ezra 4. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves will build unto the Lord God of Israel as, the king, as king Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. The remnant of God's people reminded their adversaries what God had commissioned them to do. Now, I know that he used Cyrus to do it, but the word came from the Lord, and he moved in Cyrus' heart, uh, that Gentile king, to commission that work. But it was God behind all of it. In Matthew 4, you find Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness, be tempted of the adversary. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter came to him. The adversary tried to distract Jesus with the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet our great high priest, the captain of our salvation, overcame the distractions of the adversary. How did he do it? You remember? He said, but the word of the Lord says this. The devil said, hey, you're hungry, aren't you? You've been fasting for 40 days. Who wouldn't be hungry? I know a friend of mine, his name is Rock Deerfield. He's a pastor in, in Stone, uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia. He did a 40-day fast one time. He's a big guy. He's a big guy. He said after three days, he would have beat up his grandmother for a blueberry muffin. That was him, not me. He went on a 40-day fast. Can you imagine that? He lost all kinds of weight, which is good for him. But, I mean, can you imagine? He actually enlisted the help of a physician not to help him uh, go on the fast, but to come off it. Because it would have killed him if he had eaten what he wanted to eat. But a 40-day fast, here's Jesus, just got off of a 40-day fast, and the adversary comes along to him and says, hey, see those stones? Why don't you just make them bread? How did Jesus answer him? The word of God says that man shall not live by bread alone, by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He took him up into a high, uh, high place, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all this. Right? Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. He said, uh, go ahead, uh, dive off this, 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 this pinnacle, this high peak. God will protect you. Jesus said, uh, answered him by the word of God. And, and don't tempt the Lord your God. Right? Remember that? Same thing as uh, looking over the kingdoms of the earth. If you'll just bow down, no, no. Thou shalt worship the God, God alone, right? He answered them with the word of God. And so that's what we have to do as well. We have to be careful that we answer and overcome the distraction of the adversary by the word of God, rehearsing it in our minds, meditating on what God has said and what God hath commanded us, Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Number four, the last point will be done for this morning. The adversary weakens the hands of God's people. Look at chapter 4 and verse number 4. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah. The last thing the adversaries wanted was for the Jews to have a place in the nation. Well, that's strange, isn't it? You know that's still true today. To today, the last thing that the adversary wants is for the nation of Israel to have a place in the nation. That fight's still going on. Wow. So every they did everything that they could do to make their task more difficult, to weaken the hands of those who had determined to obey God. Now, here's what I want you to know. Look at verse number four, the first part. The adversaries were successful in their attempt. Look what it says. Then the people of the land weakened. There's a foregone conclusion. It's, it's mentioned here as, as, a, as a fact. 
then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah. I want you to think about that. They were successful. The people, that adversary was successful. But I want to note this once again. The people's hands were weakened, not God's. God didn't fail. God didn't lose any power. I thought about Isaiah chapter 50, verse number 2. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I draft the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. We think about our work for God. Our goal is God and His glory. Don't ever make a mistake of making a goal out of a byproduct. Substituting a byproduct weakens the goal and it weakens the hands of those who labor. labor. They become what the Bible calls weary in well-doing. That's what happens when you make a byproduct the goal. Well, we want attendance to go up at church. If we make attendance at church the, the goal, attendance at church is a byproduct of glorifying God. But if we make it a goal, we're going to get weary in well-doing. We want to, you know, we want to see this. If we make this or that or some other thing the goal, it's, it's going to lead to weariness and well-doing. If we become weary and well-doing, we need to check two things. We need to check the yoke we're attempting to wear and the burden we are attempting to bear. You know what Jesus said, and I'm going to close with this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, he said it because there, there was a, a nation of people that were burdened were burdened by religion. He had said, I think before this, if not before, it was shortly after what I'm about to tell you. He had said to the, to the religious leadership, he said, you've taken away the key of knowledge. And, and you have placed a burden on these people that you yourselves cannot even keep and do not even try. And so when Jesus said what he said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he's speaking to people who were overburdened, weary, and well-doing. They were sincere in their worship. They were trying to honor the Lord. But they'd made a goal out of the byproducts, essentially. And they became weary and well-doing. And so Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lonely in heart. And ye shall find what? Rest to your souls. Then he said this, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He didn't say you weren't going to have a yoke. He didn't even say you weren't going to have a burden. But he said it was easy and it was light. And if, if in... Doing what we're supposed to do for God, we find that we're becoming weary and well-doing. You know what that means? That means we better check the yoke we're wearing and the burden we're bearing because it's the wrong one. It's not easy. It's not light. Again, it's not that we're, we're totally void of burdens, that we're totally void of the yoke, the yoke of labor. But it's different. It's a yoke that we bear with Christ, right? We're in the yoke together with Christ. Labors together with God, Paul said to the church at Corinth. What does the adversary do? He's always trying to weaken the hands of God's people by 
adding more to their burden. Getting them to try on another yoke or a different yoke. Put this one on. We don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. I heard of an old farmer who had a mule and it fell down into a hole. And that farmer bought, got a shovel. Farmers don't buy shovels. <laughs> Been using the same shovel for 100 years. Their dad used that shovel. Anyway, not real farmers. He got a shovel and he, he took a, a shovel full of dirt and he threw it on top of the back of that mule. The mule shook it off. Somebody came along and he said, what are you doing? Why are you burying your mule? He said, I'm, the mule fell in a hole and I'm not burying him. He just kept shoveling. Shovel full of dirt on that mule's back and the mule shake it off. And before you know it, what had happened, but that mule rose up out of that hole because he figured out what to do with the burden. That dirt on his back he shook it off. And he rose up out of his out of his problem because he dealt with his burden correctly, right? I don't know if you're listening today or you're watching today or you're in the building, but I, if you're under the burden of some religious performance, you know, you've, you've got a religion. Listen, I don't doubt that you're sincere in it. But maybe you, you're under the burden of religion and it's wearisome. It's burdensome to you. Can I invite you to come to Christ? If you've not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, you've, there's never been a time that you can remember when you trusted in Christ alone so that you might have a relationship with God and home in God's presence for eternity. Why don't you settle that today? Why don't you shake off the yoke and the burden of that adversary who's trying to get you to go another way? He's trying to weaken your hands. He's trying to make you believe you can earn your way to heaven. He's trying to make you believe that if you're just born in the right family, you're okay. He's trying to make you believe that if you just get baptized or you know, do the sacraments or this or that or the other thing. No, no, no. Long yoke. Long burden. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ alone as your own hope of a relationship with God. I hope in His presence for eternity. Maybe you're here today, you've already trusted Christ as your Savior, and Lord may have showed you some other thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've seen the adversary work in that way in my life, and I, I don't want that. So I want to invite you to just spend some time with the Lord, however the Lord may have spoken to your heart this morning. Mrs. Knopf is going to play a hymn of invitation. However the Lord may have spoken to your heart, I don't know. But if God spoke to you, I hope he spoke to you. I know he's speaking. I hope you heard from God this morning. And as, as you've heard from God, just respond to that, to him in your heart. There's a place for you to pray up here. You can pray right, right where you are. Just spending time with the Lord. We'll finish this message tonight. But think about the ways of the adversary. Maybe you just pray this way. Lord, would you bind the adversary in my life? Would you just bind that adversary? Maybe you'd pray for somebody else. I don't know. However the Lord may have spoken your heart this morning, you pray as we're dismissed.